Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Well, I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And this show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, Please sign in through your Blog Talk Radio or Facebook account. Selma Stewart introduced the Freedmen's Bureau records to us on March 12, 2012. And I'm really happy to have Sharon Baptiste Gillums continue to share the rich genealogical value of reviewing the Freedmen's Bureau records. Sharon Batiste Gillens is a native of Galveston, Texas, with paternal ancestral roots in St. Mary Parish, Louisiana, and maternal roots in Fort Bend County, Texas. A lifelong interest in her family's history led to an active involvement in researching African-American family history over the past 25 years. While researching her own family, she developed an interest in unique and underutilized record systems and record groups. Some of her more recent work focuses on strategies researchers can use to analyze Louisiana's Freedmen's Bureau field office records for revealing often personal information on freedmen ancestors. Ms. Gillens is a member of the Galveston Historical Society, the National Genealogical Society, and the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. She is also a member of the adjunct faculty at Samford Institute of Genealogy and Historical Research in Birmingham. So I'd like to give a warm welcome to Sharon Batiste, Gillums to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Bernice. It's very nice to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I am. I look at this as an opportunity because you are going to share one of my most famous favorite record groups. And let's just start at the beginning because some people may not even know or quite really understand what the Freedmen's Bureau records are. So would you give us some background information on the Freedmen's Bureau? Sure, I'd be glad to. Well, the Freedmen's Bureau was formed during a, it it happened during a post-Civil War period, and it was the greatest transition in the United States history. It's a period of transition from war to peace, from slavery to freedom, from Confederate and Union states to United States, and from slave labor economy to a free labor economy. So the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Abandoned Lands was formed in 1865 as a way to get the country back on track. Um, It was certainly in chaos, having been through a devastating war. And so the Bureau... uh, 
normally called Freedmen's Bureau, uh, was established as a way to help aid the transition of freedmen from slavery to freedom and to ensure the smooth operation of the agricultural economy of the South, because, of course, that was the engine that was driving the economy at that time. Um, so some of their uh, objectives were to provide relief not just for freedmen, but also for poor whites who had uh, lost everything in the war. They also tried to help freedmen achieve self-sufficiency, establish schools, legalize marriages, reunite families, resolve conflicts. So they had a very, very broad mission. That is a broad mission. And, you know, one of the things that you just mentioned, you didn't just say to help freed men. You said poor whites also. And it was a broad mission indeed. But some people may not recognize or realize that it helped a lot of people. Oh, it absolutely did help a lot of people. Uh, for us as researchers, the value of the records is that it provided me with uh, some of the most personal information I've ever seen about uh, ancestors, uh, formerly enslaved ancestors, and a picture of community that was, it was so first person and personal that I've never seen that kind of information before. Well, when you the way say that so I, personal, yes, tell us more. Well, here's here's how I started my my interest in Freedmen's Bureau records. There was a persistent family tradition that had been told over and over again in my family that my uh, great grandmother actually uh, operated a, a Freedmen's School on the land that they owned. I knew where the land was located, so I set out on a quest to find out whether that was a, a true story or not. So in mm -hmm. researching Record Group 105, which is the record group for the Freedmen's Bureau Field Office Records, I found so much more than I had ever anticipated on so many different subjects that would have appealed to researchers in all different uh, aspects of uh, Civil War and post-Civil War history that I just became intrigued and started getting more into the records and the kind of personal information was uh, pretty much, I can only say, it was astounding. It was astounding. Yes, and I, I, I can certainly agree with you because I also found an ancestor in one of those records, and it was it was amazing just to, to find those records. We have a comment coming out of the chat that said that while in some communities most recipients of, of rations were not former slaves, and the, the, the uh, Angelus said that she's seen this in western Arkansas where recipients were poor whites, Cherokee Indians, and not just Cherokee Freedmen. That is absolutely true. Uh, and it depends on the state that you're researching as to what kind of information you will find. But I'd like to just uh, tease everybody with some of the information that I've found and that really just blew me away. I just never would have anticipated so many things on such a personal and first-person level that I've never seen in any type of record before. Part of the uh, way to understand this is to understand that the Freedmen's Bureau was established in a, in a military format. There was an office, a main office, and um, the commissioner was in Washington, D.C., and there, was, there were uh, offices at the state level, and there were sub-districts, and the real interest King records took place at the field office level. So because of this military hierarchy of reporting, um, we are now the beneficiaries of that. The government oversight over this whole issue of uh, reconstructing the South was a very unpopular cause, and the government needed to track the progress of the work and the expenditures, and so they collected all this data. What we end up with is reports on reports on reports. There were registers and lists of freemen. 
whereas most people think that the first time they can find their Freedmen ancestors in the 1870 census, not true. One of the first things they had to do was to go in and figure out who was there. So basically they took a slave census, registers and lists of Freedmen, inspection reports, plantation reports, requests for dispute resolution, labor contracts, education reports, medical reports, summary reports, monthly reports, tri-monthly reports, and everything in between. So what I'd like to do is start off with the labor contracts. I want to come back to that education uh, report that actually got me started on this, and I'll come to that. But let me start with the labor contracts because labor contracts really defined what the – Uh, the Bureau was about, because the absence of contract is slavery. If you work without contract, that is slavery. So that was really one of their primary missions was to uh, go in and uh, establish labor contracts with uh, the former slavemen. So, So now you are changing the relationship between freedmen and uh, for and former owners. Now we're we're changing that to uh, a worker and 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 wage for working for wages. So the first thing they had to do is figure out who was there. So these mm-hmm. the registers of freedmen, uh, registers of colored people is what they were typically called, were very very revealing. Um, lists of uh, freedmen with columns on columns of information. So in my family, uh, as I said, I was uh, researching in Louisiana. I started looking in the labor contracts. And when I looked in the labor contracts, I found a record for uh, one of my ancestors. His name was Nick Colbert. The labor contracts are very diverse. They are diverse in form. They're diverse in language. But the information was amazing. Some of them were pre-printed. Some of them had standard language. Some of them had spaces for changes. But all of them included amazing information. I found my uh, ancestor, Nick, in a register of colored people, and one of the one of the columns in that register of colored people was former owner. Well, I never had heard of this man's name before. His name was Philip Rawls. So since I'd never heard of that information before, when I was in Salt Lake, I had an opportunity to look that information up. I looked up Philip Rawls and his estate papers. He died. You always want the plantation owner to die before the end of slavery. He died, and there was Nick in the in in the uh, inventory of his estate. So that validated that, and I found out information I had never known before about my ancestor, Nick Colbert. I also found uh, in the same uh, register, just a couple lines away, my great-great-grandmother, Christine, and we knew from our family tradition that she was a slave of a Berwick family, but I had no validation of that. Through the register uh-huh. of colored persons, I was able to find that out because they named her former owner. They also, as as uh, David Berwick, where she lived, Bayou Sal, and what she was currently doing. On With Nick, I learned his former owner, where he lived, that he was now working for the railroad, and how much he was earning. So that was an enormous amount of information to find from one from one record. That's just one one example from the labor contracts that I was able to to find. So very interesting. Another thing that I found uh, that was fascinating was you. Many times we have lost the information over time. What was the name of the plantation? We may yes. know. Yes. We may be able to find the owner's name, but we don't always have the ability to attach the owner to the name of the plantation. And that's the way to find out about the living conditions a lot, is to know the name of the plantation. Well, there were many instances where there were lists that included the owner of the plantation or the lessee, the person who was leasing the plantation, and the name of the plantation. So that is critical information when you're researching and trying to connect your ancestors prior to 
the end of uh, slavery. Um, Freedmen's the the, uh, the labor contracts also contain very specific information about what people were doing. Like um, in Carondelet Plantation, I found a, a monthly account book. It was called Weights of Cotton as Picked by the Negroes on Carondelet Plantation. It was a monthly account. And in that a monthly account were the names of freedmen attached to these freedmen were um, their families. They were they were listed in groups. So you then have identified a whole family uh, together. And not only were they listed in groups, you see them for the first time using uh, surnames. And the labor yes. contract is, of course, the first time that a freedman has the opportunity to uh, affix their mark to a contract at all. And so it's their first official act that is a legal act that is recognized with them. So Now, we have a question coming out of the chat room so that you yes. can clarify something. First of all, you mentioned the registers of the black persons. And I, I know I, I know that that's in the Louisiana. Um, I, I see that in the Louisiana book. But what about the other states? Did all of the other states have a similar register? I would say yes. And the only way to know that for sure is to begin to research that. And uh, toward the end of this, I'll tell you how to actually find that out. There's a, a descriptive pamphlet from the National Archives for each state in which the uh, Freedmen's Bureau operated. And the DP, our descriptive pamphlet, has a very detailed list of all the different microfilm that uh, uh, are in existence or available for research for that state. And from there, you can tell exactly what's on each microfilm, and it's a very accurate list. So. That's one of your first steps when, you, if you want to research this, is to go to narrow.gov and download the descriptive pamphlet so that you can know what exact records existed. There was a different number of records uh, in existence for every state. There were 15 states represented, with as many as 203 microfilm. That's in Virginia, the largest number and as few as 23 or 28. Texas has very few. Louisiana is very rich. It has 111 microfilm. So you can see that could be your lifelong work right there. That's Just research right. all of those. Right. Now, you know, there's a comment saying, unfortunately, those records are not indexed. No, they're not indexed. But, you know, uh, in my opinion, the fact that they're not indexed makes you um, or gives you the opportunity to discover so much more than you had anticipated. Indexing is fast. Yes, you can enter your ancestor in there and you can, you know, find that Virginia does have their records indexed and they're available on FamilySearch.org. But I, I like the fact that you have to dig through the records because you discover so much more than what you anticipated. You learn so much more about the community and how the community uh, uh, existed. In. So while I'd love to be able to put the name in there and have it come up, I just feel like I benefited so much more from having to dig through and find it because it, it, there's so much unanticipated information there and that you just really – miss out on a lot of that if you do just have to put, put the name in there and have it come up. Right, right. So let's continue to talk about this, this rich information that's available uh, in the free okay. records. All right, well, I was able to actually create a profile of the community in which my ancestors lived. Uh, from the records, I was able to find out about the conditions of the freedmen, uh, the race relations, the education, the crops, the health, other interesting information. And uh, so it was just, let's just start with the conditions of the free people. The okay. field office agent, the 
and they called us agents. These were the people on the ground every day meeting the freedmen and working with them to uh, protect them from outrages to help them make the transition. So here we get a very personal relationship between the agent and the and the freedmen. And uh, they were required to send up the chain of command narrative monthly and tri-monthly reports, inspection reports, and reports about their aid to destitute people. So in these uh, narrative summaries, you find out some really interesting information. There were uh, pre-printed questions that they were required to answer, and some of them included information you would never think, like the race, race relations. Yeah, or how the freedmen are acting. In a report uh, in 1866 in the parish, I found a statement that said, the conduct of the freedmen is very good, with one or two exceptions. Several freedmen living on the David Kerr plantation near Generet got intoxicated and created a disturbance in the neighborhood. They committed no violence, but went to Mrs. Weeks' plantation and remained there about four hours, cursing and swearing at a dreadful rate. There being no men on the plantation, Mrs. Meeks and daughters became very much frightened and did not dare to retire during the night. The freedmen finally got tired and went away. Where else could you find that kind of First-hand information. That's first, first-hand information That's describing first-hand exactly information. what's going on. That's right. That's right. Ex- exactly what's going on there. Um, I found, and had I been able to just put my ancestor's name in there, I would not have discovered some of this information. I found a circular letter from uh, the Major General, Commissioner O.O. Uh, o. Howard, Oliver Otis Howard, of course, and they were expressing concerns about the temperance of the freedmen. There was a great concern about them beginning to drink and to have alcohol. So it, the the letter says, I have information from Virginia and South Carolina that intemperance among the freedmen is on the increase. So uh, there were all kinds of organizations established to keep them from drinking. Now I find that the sons of temperance in their grand divisions retained the old bigotry and declined to extend their order to save men of dark skins from drunkenness. So uh, <laughs> where would you find that kind of information? There was aid to destitute persons. I found my ancestor... Uh, uh, his name was Lewis Lockley, my ancestor, uh, in need of aid in 1867. He was with people that were unrecognized to me. I did not know them. So in some way, they had some kind of familial Lockley and Billy Wells. There were two males, two females, and four children in the household. And he says in his own words that, He was uh, destitute on account of failure in the crop and that uh, the other person, Billy Wells, was very old with no support. And so now I have evidence of a family cohabitation pattern that I had not known before. And for Mm -hmm. his destitute appeal, he got 48 pounds of pork and 300 pounds of cornmeal. Now, as one of the... uh, Chatters mentioned, yes, there was aid to destitute whites as well. Um, There was uh, aid to a woman who was, uh, her name was, where is she? I'll come back to her. Oh, here she is. Uh, her Her name was Louis Gordy. Louisa Gordy, and she says, we have been driven from two different places by the high water, losing our garden in each instance. Mr. Gordy, my husband, has gone over the lake to try and make something by getting logs for wood with no success. They were awarded 27 and 916 pounds of pork and 147 pounds of cornmeal. So, um, yes, there were just as many, if not more, destitute whites being offered aid 
than uh, than black. I also found lists of destitute people uh, with uh, with descriptions of why they were destitute. And it showed that the Bureau had a concern for a large number of destitute elderly and disabled people who were without support. So on this list of indigent people were the names of destitute people between the ages of 67 and 90 years old. Most of them were either crippled and in ill health, some were blind, and there was also evidence of epidemic in the district. So, so much information, so much information. So much information, and we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue to this discussion. Quick break. Okay. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and most of my shows are broadcast every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, You can always access the shows as a podcast immediately after the broadcast on Blog Talk Radio or iTunes. Also, I am always looking for guests to share research strategies, special records that they've been uncovered or used in the National Archives, as well as state and local resources. So if you, you know, I'd I love to hear stories also, research, research stories. So if you would like to be on Blog Talk Radio, please drop me a note. You can drop me a note through Blog Talk Radio or Jeannie B. Uh, Boots. Uh, you can Find me that way, and we will talk, and, hey, I'll book you for the show. So I will be opening the lines for questions, and if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, feel free to call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Uh, when you do call, I, uh, I'll see you in the in the studio, and, um, hey, I'll call out your area code, and you will be live. So any of you who would like to ask a question, feel free to just call in. So let's go back to our guest, Sharon Keith-Gillens, and continue this discussion about the Freedom Bureau Records. Well, I do have a question for you, though. Now, sure. is this record group easy to use? No. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> no, it's not easy to use, and it's not uh, readily accessible. Well, I, I would say, in a way, it is readily accessible. I did most of my research either at the National Archives or I ordered the microfilm from um, FamilySearch.org and had it sent to a family history center in my area. And uh, since there are so many records, uh, so many microfilm, 111 in uh, Louisiana and 28 in Texas, it was very important for me to narrow down uh, the records that I wanted to look at. And that's where that descriptive pamphlet comes in, and it's so important for you if you want to research this record group to go ahead and read and actually study the the descriptive pamphlet so you can narrow down and figure out where it is, what record, what microfilm it is that you really want to order. So from that standpoint, um, it is a difficult slog, but so is discovering gold. You don't normally go to the gold mine and have the gold nuggets sitting on top of the ground waiting for you with a little blinking sign. You really have That's to right. get in there and dig. 
to find it. But when you strike gold, it's a very, it's rich. It's a rich vein, and it is worth, very much worth, the effort that you have to go through. And you learn so much about the area and about what was going on. Uh, I could never have imagined the relationships between the races during this period of time. But there were many uh, reports that included narrative descriptions of the of the relations between the races. Often they were reported as good, frequent reports of good feelings between the races. Uh, there were also incidences of uprises and outrages that were also uh, reported in special reports. In one, there's a special report of a murder that occurred in October 1868 where a freedman was killed. And this is pages of narrative about it. And uh, one of the lines that really struck me was the agent said, I soon after inquired of another person who told me Pope had been shot and the citizens feared that Negroes would attempt to burn the town in retaliation. And so imagine if Pope was your ancestor or if your ancestor lived in this particular area where you could see exactly what was going on in detailed narrative form, uh, what was going on between the races and how that was uh, resolved. And the, the field agent was responsible for resolving those those issues and reporting the resolution to uh, superiors in the, at the state level and then ultimately uh, to uh, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So many, many, uh, so much detail I could never have imagined. Now, I started this off by talking about the education uh, reports and that I had sought to find out this information about my ancestors. Well, I found these education reports, and again, we find not just an education report, we find monthly reports, teachers' monthly school reports, the district superintendent's school report, and each one contains different information, but all connected and very uh, important to you as a researcher. The teacher's monthly school report contained 36 columns of information that included the names and the locations of the schools, the patrons and the societies that were supporting the schools, the number of schools maintained by the freedmen, the number of buildings owned by the Bureau, the number of teachers, how many were white, how many were colored, the number of pupils in, enrolled, were they in day school or night school, the funding sources, and the difficulties in collecting the taxes from the planners to support the Freedman School. I bet they were really mad as wet hens about that. <laughs> and ultimately, I was able to confirm the presence of a Freedman School at Bayou Supermont, which is where my uh, ancestors bought their first bit of land. And I knew it was the same land because they named the owner of that land in the district superintendent's monthly report as uh as the Ceylon family, and they bought the land from the Ceylons, and so there was confirmation for me about that. And how else could I have found that information out? It was it was just wonderful. Now the the labor contracts. I'm jumping back to that because I I wanted to let you know that there was you could you could see the emergence of the sharecropping system was revealed in the labor contracts. Yes. There were many people who owned plantations that did not either have the will or the uh, means to pay wages. And so mm-hmm. they began to uh, put workers on uh, working on shares. And from the details, you could see how a worker could never meet the requirements of the share system and end up with anything because they mm-hmm. they just did not have the means to work past it. The detailed records of their accounts were kept. They were also in many cases required to pay for some of the use of the animals required to till the soil. They had to pay back the the uh, plantation owner for the seed. And so by the time the end of the year came, there was a list of expenses 
that they owed to the planner, and there was nothing left for them. And so here you see the emergence of the sharecropping system that actually our ancestors labored under for generations, for generations to come. Um, there were even contracts with children, and I think these were some of the most uh, compelling and heartbreaking, in some cases, uh, instances where children were actually uh, put under contract either by the bureau or by the parents. Now, sometimes they were called apprenticeships, but yes. was it really an apprenticeship? So if a child was either an orphan or the bureau decided their parents were unfit, they were assigned to certain good citizens. In this agreement of an apprenticeship between two minor freedmen with a Dr. Hawkins, and Dr. Joseph Hawkins agrees to care and provide for two orphan children in his plantation, the children of a black man named Austin and his wife, both deceased. The boy named Billy, age nine, and the girl named Olivia, aged eight years, to be held to service to the respective ages of 18 for the boy and 15 for the girl. Now, is that apprenticeship or is that contract slavery? That's mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. On the it's other very hand, heartbreaking. Were, heartbreaking. This one even is more. This is a mother who agrees to put her child under the care of. Uh, a man named uh, C. Van Glon, and she, her name was Julia Wood. She put place and hired onto Mr. Van Glon of the first part, her daughter, Betty Virginia Wood, aged five years old, for the term of one year to learn the ABC and to spell. Now, that's a difficult decision for a mother to make. She wanted her child mm-hmm. to read and write so badly, she indentured mm-hmm. her child at five mm-hmm. years old. Uh, the labor contracts also revealed uh, so many disputes and complaints. Imagine having to sign a contract that, first of all, you could not read. You did not know whether or not that's right. said what. It said what they told you it was saying. And uh, definitely uh, the, the, uh, the plantation owners were really angry about having to do it in the first place. So they weren't happy about having to sign that. So there were many instances where they either didn't comply with the order to pay or they uh, cheated the freedmen in some kind of way. So there was disputes filed both ways, disputes by the freedmen against the planters and disputes by the planters against the freedmen. Um, Lots of contracts related to children who were hired out for short periods of time, and then the people that hired them refused to return them to to the parents, and the parents had to go to the Freedmen's Bureau to say, get my child, get my child. They refused to send my child back. So it was, uh, here is one, he, say, he says, uh, this is a dispute filed by a freedman against a planner. He says, will you be kind enough to collect $5 apiece for us from Mr. Mead? We worked one month for him at $15 a month, and he only paid us $10 because we would not work all year, which we never promised to do. There were also disputes filed by the planner against the freedman. This man says the freedmen on my place have ceased to work under the contract approved by the agent of the Bureau. Some have made contracts with other planters, leaving my place without my consent, abandoning my cotton in the field, unpicked, say between 30 and 50 bales. They are working for one-third of the crop. So they're sharecroppers. They obviously found a better arrangement, and they left him, and he's just, He's just hot as fish grease about that. Right, but, you know, you look at some of those labor contracts, and they have, uh, they're basically working from sunup to sundown. Oh, they are. Seven days a week. I mean, where is is the time off? I mean, they are back in slavery, and there's this expectation that they will produce, but they also have to cover the cost of the lodging, the clothing, the food. I mean, there's just so much that they are back in slavery. They are indeed, and um, so it it really is um, 
revealing to see what the labor um, conditions are that they are working for. The one labor contract between Nick Colbert and uh, Belfier Carlin, my my ancestor was Nick Colbert, his schedule was sun up to sundown, six days a week, lunch between 12 noon and 2.15. He was working for half the crop. His work conditions were to furnish his own provisions and perform other duties as a sign. Now, mm-hmm. other duties as a sign, that is, you know what that means. You can do whatever I know I what say. that means. That's right. <laughs> do whatever I say. And right. so the, the labor conditions also included information about if, if the, uh, the laborers get sick, they're not paid. If they're late, they're not paid. If you know, so you can really get a very personal, intimate picture of the life that an ancestor was living through the labor contracts and the field office records in general. The labor contracts right. are my favorite, as you can tell. <laughs> well, well I mean, favorite. I enjoy reading the labor contracts also. I mean, I, my ancestors were from a, um, a parish where they said there were no plantations. Of course, I pulled up every single plantation for their parish. And I just went to the, I went to the, to the National Archives, and I just I copied every last one of them. And I shared that information with others because it's something that we need to know. And this is a record group. I mean, you're talking about a record group, but very valuable information. I mean, I'm just excited listening to you share what's in it because it's something that a lot of us probably have not touched. We haven't touched on it, and especially the kind of personal details that can be found out, such as what were their wages, what were their working conditions. This is very personal information that is not going to be found in a federal record anywhere. It's not going to be found in a an, in a deed record. This is personal to the life of the freedmen during that period of time. Now, the labor contracts with women was also a very interesting uh, uh, find for me. I, I just didn't even think about it until I until I got there. I found a lady whose name was Rosa Brown. Uh, first of all, there was inequities all, all to get, all, starting way back there. There was pay, there were pay inequities between the women and the men. The first class worker female was earning six dollars a month, while the first class worker male was earning ten dollars a month. And mm-hmm. there were elaborate descriptions about what a first-class worker could do, what a yes. second-class worker could do, what a third-class worker could do. First-class worker pretty, was pretty much responsible for doing everything. A third-class worker might be someone who either had a deficiency, a physical deficiency, or was uh, aged or infirmed in some way and, or unable to do certain work. Now, Rosa Brown uh, was a first-class worker, And her actual job was she was a suckler. Does anybody know what a suckler is? She breastfed the baby. Uh, Okay. That was her job. That was her job. So, um, and it was was, uh, codified in a contract that she was a first-class worker and that her responsibility was that of a suckler. That was hard work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, wage disparities did not just start, and uh, women had it hard, uh, <laughs> even back then, especially back yes. then. Yes. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> even if they had a baby, they had to go back to the field. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, health concerns is something that we rarely would be able to find out about that, but in the, in the reports, the monthly reports, there were often, uh, inf- there was often information about what's going on related to health. In Louisiana, of course, all that swamp land down there, there was always concern about yellow fever and cholera. And so mm-hmm. from that, we can find out where the yellow fever was, when it was there, what were the weather conditions, and all of this in the report. 
So uh, in one report I found, it says, the yellow fever is still very bad in some parts of the parish, particularly so at the Carrington Plantation, about eight miles from Franklin, the seat of justice of the parish. The cholera has appeared on some of the plantations near Franklin, though it is not epidemic. Twelve deaths have occurred among the freedmen in the last ten days. Where would you find information like that? Medical reports were available, narrative descriptions of the conditions, the disease, the hospitals, and even the prevailing labor contract provisions for their medical care. Uh, One report says, in view of the provisions in the labor contracts in this state requiring planters to furnish medical aid to their employees, this department has been connected with them with uh, the motive of the economy. It is considered impolite to station medical offices in different parishes to perform duties which the planner is bound to provide. So while they were required to do it, uh, some of them certainly did not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in these day-to-day journals that... I call it all the other interesting things that could have happened in there. You find it's almost comical sometimes. The It's like early reality television, early reality, <laughs> yes, because of, yes. of the detail that you can find. It's an interesting detail. So and here's it, one that amazing. I found particularly interesting. It says, free woman Delphine complained of having been insulted and brick-ass thrown at her on the 20th by white boys of this town. I accompanied her to the magistrate in order to make an affidavit against the assaulters. The magistrate having another case under consideration at the time, she was requested to reappear in about a half an hour. But she has failed to make an affidavit up to this time. In the same page... Here is your reality TV. The last two months, and thereby making his wife jealous, she on several occasions followed her husband to Amanda's, and on one occasion she found both together in bed. On the 20th, she again saw her husband enter the cabin, and when she attempted to enter it also, she found it locked. She called her husband out, and with him came Amanda, armed with a pistol and fired a shot at Kate, hitting her. <laughs> wow. Oh, I just cracked wow. up at that. That was well, as you say, you're upfront and personal, and up we're not talking about slave narratives. We're talking right. about the real thing. They are documenting, and they're not documenting that for us. They're documenting right. that for the federal government. For the federal government. For the federal government. And they, they, these narrative reports I found so compelling because they gave them a list of about 20 questions that they were required to respond to in these narrative reports. That included things like the weather, the, the, uh, the crops, the conditions of the crops, um, interesting information, and that was actually written. Other in, other interesting information was the last thing that they had in that list of required responses. So right, right. It was all it's, very it's, interesting. It's so much. It is so interesting. But tell it's us so about much. the marriages, the marriage records. The marriage records were, uh, we often hear about more about the marriage records than anything else, and uh, that was definitely one of the one of the primary reasons that the, or functions of the Freedmen's Bureau was to uh, legalize marriages. Honestly, I have I have not found any of my ancestors legalized in the marriages, but uh, the marriage records do exist. Some of many of them existed even before the Freedmen's Bureau came into existence formally. Uh, mm-hmm. They started legalizing the marriages uh, soon after uh, the end of slavery in in those pre-Bureau uh, records. So marriage records are there. We often hear about the Freedmen's Bank records. Those are the most uh, the most heard about. And I think I just got carried away with the least heard about records because of the detail uh, that I was able yeah. to find in that. 
So but since I am just such an advocate for these records, I'd like to give everybody an opportunity to um, to research the, the place that they are interested in. So to get started, uh, go to uh, NARA, to the Art National Archives website, and find the field office records. Uh, a descriptive pamphlet, and there are 15 states represented, including the District of Columbia, um, all the southern states, Alabama, Arkansas, D.C., Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, and Delaware together, Mississippi, enormous amount of pre-bureau records, Missouri, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. Virginia having the most, and I'd like to give um, kudos to Virginia for they've already digitized their records and they are searchable and available on um, familysearch.org. Mm-hmm. I know there was some uh, diligent African Americans and other researchers involved in that and it was no small task, but it was very much worth it. Now, of course, the records are available in microfilm uh, at the National Archives and the, um, the, the, all the different offices of National Archives. And you can go to familysearch.org and order the records and have the microfilm delivered to where you can look at them. There are also a few of the records on online at uh, Ancestry.com. I really can't make sense of I'm not able to find things as easily as when I have the microfilm in front of me. But there are some records available there of all different types, including marriage records, labor contracts, conflicts, tax rolls. I found some tax rolls. And, and there's different records, microfilms for, for different states. So, um, Right. And at one time, and I don't know if those records are still there, I was looking for them today, uh, archives.org. Um, at one time, I used to go in and just do the stream and find exactly what I wanted. And uh, I see that uh, Karen Galloway just put it on here. Uh, she says she has been able to find all the records online at, on archives.org. And I know that I have at one point. Uh, but for those of you who haven't looked, please go and check out archives.org. And, and perhaps you will be able to, yes, you can stream, I mean, they stream, it's just like you're looking at the reel, and you're going through the, the various record groups. So if you know, you know the state, you know where you're looking, just uh, just try it out and see what you find. Well, there, again, um, the first, your first stop should be uh, National Archives so you can get that descriptive pamphlet. That way you can narrow down your search. You can look for just exactly what you want because, like, I started out looking for education reports. So there were 111 microfilms. Had I not gone through the descriptive pamphlet to identify where they were for the district that my ancestors were located, I would still be looking for that information. But the descriptive pamphlet is so accurate and so precise, uh, you can narrow it down to the exact microfilm role that you need to, to look at. That's right. So everyone, I mean, please get the descriptive pamphlet. They are worth it to carry around. And and one of the things that Sharon and I were talking about is we have the original pamphlets that we will not let anyone take away from us. Right, we won't. Because these pamphlets are worth it. That's right. So the archives used to, uh, they were bound and uh, distributed free of charge, of course, at the National Archives. Now, since they went green, Bernice told me it was a part of their green movement, they are not handing out the bound versions of it anymore. It's certainly much more cost-effective and saving some trees if they don't. It's a download. It's a PDF download. So you can download and uh, save it and review it. The mine is so full of underlines, highlights, sticky tabs, and notes that it has become a very personal reference for me. Right, and I can attest to that because mine is the same. I even have my <laughs> coffee marks on it, <laughs> but it's definitely my book. I love this record group, and I, I'm just saying that this is this is one record group. If you have not, 
if you, if have, you not have not the time to do it is when you get off of this, this call. And believe it or not, do you know that we are close to the end of the show? No. I haven't taken a yes. single question. Who's out there? <laughs> Any questions before we uh, close out for tonight? Any questions from the chatters? Or if anyone would like to call in, 646-200-0491. We have a few minutes remaining for the show. Well, I'd love to hear some um, descriptions of other people who may have already researched the record group to see what kind of information they were able to find. Because the, the type of information you find has everything to do with the type of information you're looking for. You may not be interested at all at the education reports where I started, but you may be interested in uh, economic conditions, uh, and then there are the plantation reports that could give you that information. In the plantation reports that were also a part of the field office records, I found lists of plantation owners, the name of the plantation, and 33 columns of information about the plantation itself, what the crops they were uh, growing, how many uh, how many acres of land they had, how many acres were devoted to the freedmen for share, were they, how were they paying their workers, whether they're paying them wages or share, how many workers there were, what they were growing, how many acres, I mean, just 33 columns of information. So if you're interested in the economic conditions, the crops, there would there would be enormous amount of information. And most of these reports had a column that you always look at, and that column was remarks. That's where a lot of really interesting information was found because the unique information, the anomalies, the, the different information was always put out in remarks. And uh, I always tried to uh, read all the remarks because the remarks gave you more, even more information than the, the columns. But where else would you, would you find that much information specific to all the different plantations in a particular area? First of all, now I knew the names of all the plantations and the owners of all the plantations and then the crops that were being grown. What were the weather conditions that affected that? And those are the kinds of things that would be found in remarks. They might say, uh, August killed all the the rice crop or what have you. So very much uh, a powerful record group. Just depends on what you're looking for, and I promise you, because there's something there. In addition to finding out the specific genealogical information about ancestors, there you will learn so much about uh, where your ancestors lived and how they lived and made that critical transa- transition from slavery to freedom. Well, I have some comments because I've added a, a, some time to the show so that people could, you just said, well, you'd like to hear what other people have found. And so I have comments coming out uh, with individuals saying what they've found. So we have Karen, and Karen said that she saw information about transfers into or out of parishes or counties. And uh, Angela said that she found unique records in letters between various uh, field offices. Uh, so, you know, the information is out there. Now, Karen wants to know, she wondered if most if most stayed on plantations or went to other plantations, and what was the mobility like for the freedmen? Well, I don't know what the percentages of people who stayed and who left, but the Freedmen's Bureau was also um, – they also worked with the freedmen to help them reunite families and to provide them transportation to other places in and out of where they were, you know, out of where they originally lived. Um, that's a very good question and one that, you know, I bet is the answer is somewhere in the Freedmen's Bureau records. Now, the field office records had one set of information and then the records at the state level and at the uh, federal level or all the way in the Washington, D.C. office had different kinds of information, more aggregate information, and that would be a place to start looking for that type of information. The field office mm-hmm. record was were specific to that area, and 
at each level, then they would aggregate the state information and then send it up to the top. To, and so that's where I would look for that type of information. Mm-hmm. Well, I do have a question uh, coming in, and it's area code 443. Do you have a question or comment? Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Wonderful show. Um, Thank you. I'm curious, uh, Sharon, if you have found many, well, I'll call them transportation records. Uh, I have found, um, uh, I was the one that mentioned a group of people who were moved from Georgia to Arkansas, and another colleague found a group of former slaves, about 200 sent to Arkansas to work the crops in the Delta area, many of whom stayed. They were from northern Virginia. Have you found cases where people were being transported from one community to another? I have not, but I have not made an effort to find that. That wouldn't be something that I was looking for, but just like you found that because you were looking for that, that, that's what I mean. I have not found that in my labor in the in Louisiana. Okay, it was something I stumbled upon. I think this was apart from the field office. These were just letters between the offices. The Little Rock field office was sending notice to the Fort Smith, the Western Arkansas field office, letting them know to prepare themselves for this colony of freedmen coming in from Georgia. And of course, I became very curious about it. And oh, I don't know, several hundred pages later, I even found the names of the people who came. They were expecting 40, and 140 came. Wow! And uh, it just wow! It just blew my mind away. Blew because, you away? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. It, it just absolutely blows you away. And so here is why I say I like the fact that the records in that index. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree. It, it I forces you to read the entire that. record. Yes, it, it really forces you to just sit there and read. You're reading a novel. You really study. <laughs> you, you study them, and just like you said, this is pre, pre-reality TV. Yes. Because the but information is there, and these are primary sources. Primary sources. And, and yes, what yes. Anyway, valuable so information. Great, Great question. Great question. I'll thank you so much. I'll keep out for that. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much. Any other questions or comments before we close out tonight? Well, do you have any parting words for for our chatters and and listeners on the phone? Anything that you want to share with them that they need to know and understand about this record group? Well, I I would just like to encourage everybody uh, to take a look at this record group. It is not not like going to Ancestry and plugging in and you're going to get a leaf. That's not going to happen. But the information you find will be so valuable. And it is not a record group that is just of value to uh, people researching African-American freedmen ancestry. There, everybody is represented in these records. In fact, I had an article that was in the uh, uh, NGS magazine about white ancestors and in the Freedmen's Bureau records. So regardless of who you are researching, there's going to be information there about them because who was in the community? There were planters in the community. There were poor whites in the community and and there were freedmen in the community and some t- and often free uh free blacks in the community they are all represented the plantation records and the reports of the plantation have uh information about the planters the aid to destitute people includes uh the free the uh the indigent whites who are there and certainly the labor contracts includes everybody who was there and uh, so the kind of information that you find depends on what you're looking for and whether you're researching black, white, or economic conditions, health conditions, uh, labor conditions, it's there. And as the caller said, transportation records, who knew? It's all there. So It's all there. It's difficult and challenging, but you find 
so much richness that it's worth it's worth the slog through through the records. And I would encourage everybody to to find those records and go for it. That's right. And the next show that we'll have, we'll have people just coming on and telling us what they found. Which means that all of you, all of you chatters now, you're going to go and check those records, and we're going to have the show just about. <laughs> Come I back would on love and that. Talk about like this. Oh, I would too, because I love hearing hearing the stories, and I know I've gone through those records and found my own ancestors, and so it's just something that we we need to talk more about and share what we have found. Well, I want to just let people know what's coming up next week, next Thursday, December 12th, we'll have family historian Elaine Parker Adams. And next week we will actually, I've posted the September lineup so that everyone can get an idea of what's going on in September. So, uh, you know, I want you to please, you know, tune in. We will have Michael Henderson next week, and I see Kanetta in the chat room. And so, Kanetta, we're looking forward to your show. And we will also have a, a show on Louisiana resources as well as a show on the antebellum Southern Plantation Records. So this will be an opportunity in the month of September for you to listen, learn, and take action. And I want to thank Sharon for joining us in the chat room tonight. Sharon, this has been just a wonderful show for us to hear. And uh, for some of you, you may not have realized this, but this was a rebroadcast of an interview with Sharon uh, several months ago. And so I want to continue this dialogue. We need to talk about the uh, records of the field offices. And so I want you to come on, talk to me, share with me. So remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are provided to Oh, history and research at the National Archives and beyond. Remember to listen to the uh, African Roots podcast tomorrow with Angela Walton Raji, and also remember to listen to Antoinette Harrell on uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, Wednesdays. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I look forward to you joining me next week. Good night. <laughs>